Our gracious God and Father, we ask you now to sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Open our eyes now that we might behold wonderful things in your beautiful word. And what we know not, please teach us. And what we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. All for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved son who lives with you and who reigns with you together with the Holy Spirit. One God forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. We are all utterly dependent creatures, aren't we? We all need food and water and air in order to live. Your very life hangs upon your next heartbeat and upon your next breath. In his recent book, The Body, Bill Bryson wrote these words, quote, Quietly and rhythmically waking and sleeping, generally without thinking, you breathe in and out 20,000 times a day. And in a single day, your lungs process 4,000 gallons of air. That's about 7.3 million breaths between birthdays. And that's about 550 breaths over the course of an average lifetime. Now in the Christian life, there is actually something akin to breathing. It's called prayer. Prayer is the oxygen of the Christian soul. Prayer expresses our utter dependence upon our life-giving, life-sustaining God. John Stott once wrote this, To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. But if we're honest, when it comes to our own practice of prayer, we're often holding our breath, aren't we? We want to pray more frequently, but we don't make time for it. We want to pray more fervently, but sometimes our hearts are just half-hearted. We want to pray more expansively, but often our prayer requests seem small. Lord, just give me enough strength to get through just another difficult meeting at work. Or Lord, give me just enough blessing to get that last parking space. It's Slim's. <laughs> now I realize, I'm fully aware, brothers and sisters, that sermons on prayer are about as enjoyable as root canals. But this morning, this morning, I don't want you leaving feeling defeated and condemned and discouraged. Because we have this incredible privilege. We get to learn a lesson on prayer from one of the most godly, devoted followers of Jesus Christ who has ever lived, the Apostle Paul. A man who lived a life of prayer. A man who was fully devoted to prayer. A man who prayed without ceasing. And not only that, we get to listen to and linger in and learn from one of the greatest prayers ever recorded in all of Scripture. We get to do that this morning. You can say amen. 
So please, if you have a Bible, open up or swipe over to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 977. And if you don't have a Bible that you can read, please take the Pew Bible. It'll be a gift from our church to you. Don't take your neighbor's Bible, take the Pew Bible. But if you need a Bible, take that with you. We want you to be able to follow along as we walk through this passage together. Just briefly, just because we're jumping into Ephesians, briefly, you remember from Acts chapter 19 that Paul the Apostle planted, he started the church in Ephesus. It's recorded in Acts 19. This was a major city in all of Asia, huge trading area, lots of people, 250,000 people upwards. They didn't bow down to uh, statues of hogs there in Ephesus, but they did bow down to statues of a goddess called Artemis. We know this from Acts 19. And so it was a major city, lots of Gentiles, mostly Gentiles, and so it was a, a vital place for Paul to preach the gospel. And so he stayed there for three years, preaching and teaching and proclaiming the whole council of God to that church in Ephesus. And so Paul, as we read Ephesians, we know he's in, he's in house arrest in Rome. And he's writing this letter back to the church that he loves so dearly. And he's praying for them in our passage. And what is he doing in the letter of Ephesians? He's doing this. He's helping them to understand the glorious and gracious mystery of Christ God's eternal saving plan. That's what he does in chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians. And then in chapters 4 to 6, he shows the Ephesians how to live together in the unity of the church in light of God's eternal saving plan. That's chapters 4 to 6. But right in the middle between chapters 3 and 4, or 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6, Paul does something amazing. He gets down on his knees and he prays for them. Here's his prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to try to summarize that long run-on sentence in a run-on sentence of my own. Here we go. Paul prays to the Father for his readers to be strengthened through the Spirit and to know the love of Christ so that they might grow to maturity and glorify forever the God who can do all things. I'm going to say that one more time. That's not my outline, but I'm just going to summarize the whole thing. 
Paul prays to the Father, verses 14 and 15, for his readers to be strengthened through the Spirit, verses 16 and 17, and to know the love of Christ, 17 to 19, so that they might grow to maturity, verse 19, and glorify forever the God who is able to do all things, verses 20 and 21. Brothers and sisters, You know that your words are a window into your heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance or overflow of the heart, the mouth what? You're going to wake up. Out of the abundance or overflow of the heart, the mouth what? Speaks. So our words are windows into our hearts. And that applies to our prayers. Our prayers, our words to God in prayer are a window of what's going on in our hearts. And so what we have in this prayer of the Apostle Paul, we have a window into the Apostle's heart. We get to see a picture in this passage of the holy convictions that he has that motivate him to get down on his face and pray. And so if we want to grow in our motivation to prayer, we need to know these holy convictions revealed in this prayer of the apostle that they might lead us to prayer as well. So I want to draw your attention to three, just there's so much in this passage. I'm just going to draw attention to three holy convictions of the apostle Paul that motivated him to pray and I pray will motivate us to pray as well. And my prayer for UBC is that this kind of praying would become as natural to us as breathing. Number one, number one, first conviction. Now picture in your mind, before I tell you, picture in your mind, the apostle is on his knees praying. He's in chains, chapter 6, verse 20. He's praying, he's humbling himself on the ground, praying for this congregation that's 800 miles away. Instead of standing up, he's bowing down. He says he's bowing before his heavenly father, just like Jesus taught us to pray. He's praying to his heavenly father. Verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And that leads us to the first holy conviction of the apostle. Number one, your weakness is immeasurably more than you imagine. Your weakness is immeasurably more than you imagine. Verses 14 to 17. Paul will teach us in this passage by his requests that prayer is for the helpless. We only pray for this kind of strength Paul prays for if we know that we're immeasurably weak. Now, I'm going to argue for that from the passage. I want you to see it. If you don't see what I say, my words have no claim on you. So I want you to see what I'm saying. In verses 14 to 17, notice that Paul is praying. The first thing he prays for is for immeasurable power. Immeasurable power. Immeasurable strength. And the reason he's praying for God to give the Ephesians that incredible, immeasurable strength is because they are immeasurably weak. Look in the middle of verse 16. Here's the request. He asks that the Father may grant you, notice the verb, to be strengthened with power through 
his spirit in your inner being. Do you see that? The verb, to be strengthened. It's a passive verb. It's not active. That means God is the one who has to strengthen the Ephesians. They can't strengthen themselves. God has to do it. And this power is given through his Holy Spirit in your inner being. It's an inner strength. They're not, they're not going to planet fitness to get strong. This is, this is God strengthening the Ephesians through the Holy Spirit in their inner being, in their, in their inner heart. And notice verse 16. The Father gives this power out of or according to the riches of his glory. It's not going to exhaust God to do this, right? The, the, the highest earthly monarch would lose all of his riches if he gave something to everybody on earth. But the Father has glorious, inexhaustible riches of power to give. And that's what Paul asks God to do. Now, what kind of power are we talking about here? Can Ozark Electric handle this request? Answer is no. Look at verse 19. Look at verse 19. Flip back to chapter 1, verse 19. I want you to see something. This is not the first time Paul's talked about this power. Chapter 1, verse 19. Paul prays that the Ephesians know, look at verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority. So brothers and sisters, Paul is asking God to grant to the Ephesians the same kind of immeasurable power that he exercised when he raised Christ from the dead. It's resurrection power. It's immeasurable power. It's divine power. It's the power that, that, that's the ascension power that he's talking about here. That's how much power the Ephesians need to accomplish this task. Now what's this power for? Look, look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now some of you this week, if you read the passage, you might have thought, that's strange. I thought Paul was praying for Christians, right? Christians have Christ dwelling in their hearts, right? Christ comes into our lives, dwells in our hearts when we're born again. So what's Paul asking here? What's Paul doing? This is not the, the indwelling of Christ that happens in our conversion, Paul is, has in mind Christ's continual presence, his continual dwelling with his people. How do I know this? Look at verse 14. Go back to chapter 3. Look at verse 14. The first three words, for this reason. Do you see that? So don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. For this reason, verse 14. Paul is resuming a thought that he had back in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, for this reason there. And that's pointing us back to chapter 2, what Paul just said in chapter 2. And this is what Paul had just said. We know in chapter 2 that God is doing something amazing in the church. Namely, the church is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And that in Christ Jesus, 
We, that is Jews and Gentiles, listen, are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And that is why Paul is praying this. And so this is what he's saying. This building project of God building a holy temple to the Lord in the church, of Christ dwelling in his people, that's not something Ozark Electric can empower, right? We need infinite power for this building project to happen. Now, what does it mean for Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith, to take up residence? I want you to think of it this way. We need God, the Holy Trinity, to continue to empower the building and the establishing of his church on earth. You can inhabit a place as a stranger or as a visitor, and you can inhabit a place as someone who's a permanent residence. So earlier in chapter two, Paul used the word sojourner. That's someone who's just passing through. Now, I know some of you enjoy camping, right? We haven't done any camping yet because it's been 150 degrees here. But when you go in the Ozarks and you're camping, you don't treat your tent as a permanent home. It's a temporary home, right? You're just, you're gonna maybe spend the night there, but you're not gonna spend the rest of your life there. You dwell in a tent temporarily. But you can also inhabit a place as a permanent resident. If you're only renting an apartment, maybe you don't do a lot to the, to the place where you are, but if, you're, if you buy a home and you're moving in and that's your permanent place, you're gonna start moving some stuff around. You're gonna update some things because you're living there forever. You begin to settle down there. And Christian, that's what Paul is praying about. He wants God to empower the Ephesians through the Spirit so that Christ takes up his permanent residence and settles in in that congregation. That's what he's asking. And you think about what did he have to do? Think about our hearts before he changed us. They were darkened and hard and alienated from him. But when Christ comes in and lives in us, he starts building a permanent residence for his glory, for his glory to, to take up residence in us. So here's the point. You think, what is the point of all this? Here's the point. We will only pray for this kind of strength if we understand that we are weak. So Jesus said one time, apart from me, you can do what? A few things. Is that what he said? He said, nothing. Okay, so listen to me, brothers and sisters, do not be deceived this morning. If we as a church don't understand that we are immeasurably weak, we won't pray this. What we will do is we'll look at our building. It's a wonderful building. We'll look at our staff. We'll look at our, 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 our we have lots of members. We have great elders and great deacons. But apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Apart from his strengthening grace, UBC can do nothing for eternity. And so this humbles us. And the question is, do we really believe this? Because Paul clearly does. Brothers and sisters, knowing our immeasurable weakness is a vital lesson for us to learn. I don't know about you, if I'm confident in my own abilities, 
if I think to myself, I've got this, you know what? I don't pray. It's when you know that you're desperate, that's when you pray desperately. And so this opening request of the apostle sets the tone of the whole prayer. He wants us to be desperate. He wants us to see how much power and strength we actually need from God. So brothers and sisters, in his excellent book, A Praying Life, this is what Paul Miller writes. He says this, We tell ourselves that strong Christians pray a lot. And if I were a stronger Christian, then I'd pray more. And he goes on to say this, strong Christians do pray more, but they pray more because they know they're weak. A needy heart is a praying heart. So brothers and sisters, as a church, We need to remind ourselves that we have a Father in heaven who waits to be gracious to us. We have a Father who delights to give good gifts to his children. We have a Father who will strengthen us in our time of need. And Paul's encouraging us to go to him and to ask him for immeasurable strength that is an easy match to cover up all of our weakness. Just earlier in the service, you remember Colby mentioned that tonight we have, a, we have a, a service where we're going to be praying together. Come tonight and let's pray and let's put our weakness on public display and put God's faithfulness and strength on display as well. So that's, that's the longest point. You're thinking we're going to be here till three. Holy conviction number one is your weakness is immeasurably more than you imagine. And that brings us to the second request there in verses 17 to 19. And we discover another holy conviction of the Apostle Paul. Something that motivated him to pray for the Ephesians and ought to motivate us to pray for ourselves and for one another. And that's this holy conviction. Number number two, your Savior loves you immeasurably more than you imagine. Your Savior loves you immeasurably more than you imagine. Verses 17 to 19. Look at it again. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let me put this again in my own words. It's a long sentence, but let me just try to summarize it. Paul's saying this, as those who have been loved, who have lives that have been rooted and grounded in God's love, verse 17, Paul asks God the Father once again to strengthen his readers with power, verse 18, so that they may be able to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. Verse 19. Look again, verses, verse 17. That you being rooted and grounded in love. In the original, in love is in the front of the sentence. He's emphasizing that as a believer, your life is rooted in love and it is grounded in love. Your Bible may say founded in love, built upon love. So let's take those two images for a minute. We've got an agricultural image and an architectural image. 
I know we have architects and farmers here. So this is, this is Paul speaking your language. We have a farming image and a building image. First, rooted. Think about this, rooted. Paul is saying this, Christian. Triune love is the rich soil in which your life is deeply rooted. Your life is rooted in God's eternal love. It's the soil that your life grows in. And Christian, your life is also grounded or founded on love. Christian, God's love for you is the firm foundation on which your life is permanently built. The Christian life, if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me just be really clear. Our lives as Christians are not ultimately founded upon our love for God, but on his love for us. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loves us first. He loves us when we were unlovely. He loved us when we were unlovable. And that is the foundation of our lives. And so he asked the Father to help his readers to have the power to grasp or to know or to comprehend something that is ungraspable and incomprehensible. The limitless love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, if you look there at the passage, Paul uses four terms, four like spatial terms. The breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. And I've been asked this week, what do these words mean? And having studied carefully all week long, I can confidently say I have no idea what he means. But I know that it's glorious. It's glorious. I think that the point isn't to specify each one of those. It's the, it's the rhetorical point of the whole group together. What he's trying to communicate is that what he says in the next verse to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We can apprehend that Christ loves us, but we cannot comprehend his love. Let me say that again. You can know that Christ loves you this morning. He loves you. He gave himself for you, right? But you can never comprehend all of it because it's, Beyond you, it's beyond our minds to comprehend how deep and wide and long and broad the love of Christ is. It's too big and we're too small. That's what Paul's getting at. The deepest known location on earth is what? In what, what ocean? It's in the Pacific. What's it called? I heard it. Marianas Trench. You know this. The Marianas Trench in 1951, there was a British Royal Navy uh, sub that went down to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean in the Marianas Trench. The deepest part of the Marianas Trench is called the Challenger Deep. It's 36,000 feet underwater. So just think about that. That's seven miles. Imagine being in the bottom of the ocean with seven miles of water over your head. That's like 120 football fields of water. That's like Razorback Stadium, all the way to Wright's Barbecue. Sorry I mentioned barbecue. You're thinking about barbecue now. 
if you were to drop Mount Everest into the Marianas Trench, that's 29,000 feet of water, right? You're, you're still going to have 7,000 feet of water above Everest. Now you're thinking, what's the point? What, what does this have to do with the love of Christ? It's this. We can measure it. We know exactly how deep the Marianas Trench is. But you cannot measure the depth and the breadth of the love of Christ because it just keeps going. It keeps going. The lavish love that Jesus Christ has for you, Christian, knows no limit. You can never get to the bottom of it. It's unsearchable. It's beyond finding out. It's amazing. When did he love us in Ephesians? We read in Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the love which with he, which with he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. Brothers and sisters, he has loved us and given himself for us as a sacrifice, as a fragrant offering to God. And did you notice in the passage that Paul says something startling? Maybe you skipped over it when we read it. Look again at verse 18. He says that we need to, he's asking for God to strengthen us to comprehend, notice, together with all the saints. Do you see that? What Paul is saying is this. We need each other in the church to help us grow in our grasp of the love of Christ. The love of Christ is not just one-on-one -on -one discipleship. It's something that we're supposed to grasp together with all the saints. All the believers. Now some of you here this morning, I wonder, maybe you're feeling like you're just not needed at UBC. Maybe you've been coming here for a while and you think, you know what? I'm not needed here. Well, the Apostle Paul disagrees with you. Paul says, all the saints. Not some of them. All. It takes all the saints together for us to begin to grasp the love that Jesus has for his bride. So brothers and sisters, it takes every member in this church. We all have a story of grace to tell, don't we? We all have evidences of Jesus' love in our life. And that ought to be a constant refrain in this church. You may not have to serve in this area or this area, but we all need to be testifying of how Jesus has loved us. And that will help the whole church to comprehend the breadth of Christ's love. One last thing, then we'll move on to the last one. Look at verse 19 again. Paul says that the result or the, really the purpose of us grasping this ungraspable love of God in Christ Jesus, the, the purpose of it is given right there in verse 19. So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does that mean? What does that phrase mean? If you keep reading in Ephesians, you get to chapter 4, 
Paul uses the same language to describe the church being filled up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so what I believe, what I take Paul to mean here is that as the church is strengthened by God to know and comprehend the immeasurable love of Christ, we will grow into maturity as a church. That's what he's saying. And so brothers and sisters, if that is necessary for us to grow, because I'm looking at this congregation, you all love the Bible, and that's a wonderful thing. And as we study the Bible, we need to be studying specifically God's love in Christ towards us. Because we, as a church, if we're going to grow into maturity, if we're going to be filled with the fullness of God, we need to know in our hearts and our souls that Jesus loves us. And so, brothers and sisters, do you meditate on the love of God in Christ Jesus for you? Do you take time during the week to sing about it, to pray about it, to talk about it? Maybe there's some books you can read to help you know more about it. Do we talk to one another about it? Because Paul understands that a church that's going to be mature, they need to know in their souls that God loves them. That he loves them in Christ. And as you start thinking about Christ's love for you, I imagine some of us in this room this morning, your sins and especially your failures loom larger in your heart and mind this morning than Christ's love. And brothers and sisters, this is why we gather as a church, isn't it? We need to hear the truth. Because friend, Christian, your failures are no match for his love. (laughs) Your failures cannot stop his love for you. He loves you with an everlasting love. Just think about that for a minute. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I will continue my faithfulness to you. Just ponder that for a minute. I've loved you forever, the Lord says. Therefore, I'll continue to love you. You ever thought about that? Christian, the best argument for your doubting heart this morning, that Christ's love will continue, brother and sister, he never started loving you. He has loved you with an everlasting love. He has loved you since before the foundation of the world. So he's not going to stop now. He loves you with an everlasting love. And he will love you forever. Brothers and sisters, your Savior loves you immeasurably more than you can imagine. And that brings us to the third and final one. Look at verses 20 and 21. Paul, he gets done with this prayer and then he concludes with this glorious doxology. And that brings us to number three, this holy conviction of the Apostle Paul that that motivates him to pray. And that's this. Number three, your father can do immeasurably more than you imagine. 
verses 20 to 21. Your father can do immeasurably more than you imagine. Paul transitions from prayer to praise, from intercession to doxology. Let's just read it again one more time. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. There's so much here. I just want to highlight a few things. Notice that Paul is just delighting in God's glorious ability. God is able. He has the power to do not just some things. He has the power to do more, not just more, but abundantly more beyond all that we can ask or even think or imagine. There's no, there's no gap. There's no stopping point with God's ability to answer prayer. And so God deserves all the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever. Now, one application from this point is this. Brothers and sisters, we ought to pray expansively. We ought to pray expansively. We, in other words, kids, listen to me. What do I mean expansively? You don't know what that means. Pray big prayers. Pray big prayers one of my favorite dead pastors. I hope you have dead pastors that you love. I have tons of them. My favorite dead pastor is John Newton. And one of his hymns, we, he would write a hymn and a sermon every week based on the sermon text. Like I just look at myself and I'm like, I'm such a loser. I mean, he, he wrote a hymn and a sermon, right? But in one of the sermons, he wrote a hymn. And in the hymn, he said this, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with you bring, for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. You can't ask too much because he can do all things. So do our prayers match up with the glory of the God who answers prayer? You have someone in your family who's lost. You can pray, Lord, just work in their life. Or you can pray, Lord, save them. Take out their heart of stone. Grant them a heart of flesh. My earnest prayer and desire to you, God, is they may be saved. And he can do it. Do your prayers Sound like big, sweeping requests, like the ones that Paul's praying. I mean, when's the last time? I mean, I was thinking about this week. I have prayed more often for parking spaces than I have prayed, Lord, strengthen me to grasp the incomprehensible love of God in Christ. So brothers and sisters, this passage teaches us we can never outask God's ability to answer. This is the confidence, 1 John 5:14. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he what? Hears us. So, brothers and sisters, pray big prayers. Pray big prayers. 
Now, if you're here with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're thinking, I don't understand any of this stuff about prayer. What is he talking about? Maybe, maybe no one has ever taught you how to pray. And we're delighted that you're here. A few years ago, Allison and I went to see a movie. And the movie, I don't remember the name, it was about two astronauts. And there was this space station accident and they were kind of floating in space. And then the, 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 the actress who, I think in the, in the movie, she was like a medical engineer. And at the end of the movie, she knows that she's about to die. And there's this poignant moment. And she says this, quote, I'm going to die. Everybody dies, but I'm going to die today. No one will mourn for me. No one will pray for me. I've never prayed. Nobody ever taught me how. And maybe you're here this morning and you're also afraid to die. And no one's ever taught you to pray. Well, friend, I have wonderful news. The one that we've been singing about, the one that we've been praising, the one that we've been reading about in this passage, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came into the world not only to teach sinners like you and me how to pray, more than that, he came into the world to live the life that we haven't lived. He was obedient in all the ways that we have fallen short. We've not loved God, our maker, the way he commands us to. We've never loved him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly. And so in our own efforts, we fall immeasurably short. But the good news of the gospel, friend, is that this Savior loves sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. And he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And do you know what was in his mouth as he died? This one who led a life of prayer, who was always communing with his heavenly father. What was on his tongue as he died? He prayed, Psalm 31, 5. Calling out with a loud voice, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His dying breath was a prayer. And three days later, after he died for the sins of his people, after he took the penalty of our sins on the cross, he rose again from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he is our high priest and he intercedes for us this morning and he offers to anyone who would ever turn from their sins and trust in him, anyone who would receive him in the empty hands of faith, he offers himself he offers life and forgiveness and grace. And his righteousness can be counted as yours by turning from your own way of living and by receiving him as he's offered to you even this very moment in the gospel of his grace. He knows our every weakness. He knows 
our every weakness. And yet he invites us to draw near and to present our requests at his throne of grace. And so friend, this morning, as we close, will you enjoy this incredible privilege that Christ has secured for you at the cost of his own life? Will you enjoy this privilege more often today and tomorrow? And will you continue to pray as long as the Lord lends you breath?